0: and January 4th. With the holiday season now over, I feel like things are going to get, at least in some small way, back to normal. At least in the sense of this podcast. Apologies for the varied schedule. Welcome to the catch-up episode. So let's talk about Pan Am Flight 103. The year was 1988, and on December 21st, a bomb exploded aboard Pan Am Flight 103, killing everyone aboard in one of the deadliest terrorist attacks until September 11th. It was four days before Christmas, and all were merry and in a festive mood. 259 people all boarded the Pan Am evening flight, having all checked their bags or carried their carry-ons to their seats. Unbeknownst to those on board, however, a suitcase with no owner was checked and loaded onto the plane that among other various travel items contained a cassette recorder. This was, after all, the 1980s, and digital recording equipment was not as readily available as it is today. Inside this tape recorder was a bomb. Now, to be fair, this suitcase was not checked in from London's Heathrow Airport, where Pan Am 103 would eventually take off from. Instead, it was done in Germany, where it was then rerouted to London. The plane carried passengers from 21 countries, although a surprising majority of them were American students studying abroad. The flight reached an altitude of 31,000 feet. It crossed the border into Scotland, and as it fly over Lockerbie, exploded, causing debris to plummet down into the neighborhoods, jet fuel creating an inferno to be fought and leaving a crater over 150 feet deep. It actually hit with such force that its impact was felt miles away. David Jardine, one of the firefighters who arrived on scene, would later recall that a few miles away, we could see the glow. We knew there was a very serious incident there. In a terrible addition to the 259-on-board Pan Am Flight 103, 11 people on the ground were killed and 21 homes were destroyed from the resulting debris. A three-year investigation began and fragments of a circuit board and timer were found, leading them to believe that a bomb was at fault and not a mechanical failure. But the question remained of who did this and why did they do it. Accusations were soon made against Libyan nationals Abdelbaset basset al and al-Haman Khalifa Fima, who according to Britannica, were intelligence agents, but it would be almost 10 years before the Libyan government would turn over the two men for trial. And this was only done because of the sanctions that the US and the UN Security Council had placed onto Libya. The trial would begin May 3rd, 2000 and would last almost a year to January 31st, 2001. The verdict? McGrahee was found guilty and sentenced to jail for a minimum of 27 years, while FEMA was found not guilty. And while McGrahee would spend time in jail, in 2009 he was released on compassionate grounds after he was diagnosed with terminal cancer. He would die in his home in 2012. Some claim that this short jail time was not due to the cancer, but because the oil company BP lobbied for the prisoner transfer between the UK and Libya as BP had business dealings with the Libyan government. Additional conspirators were believed to have been involved, but none were known until 2015 when it was announced that two additional Libyan suspects were identified. And then in 2020, when former Libyan intelligence officer Abu Aguila Mohammed Masoud Kir al Marimi, apologies on that pronunciation, I know it was terrible, was brought up on criminal charges for the attack. This was after a 2012 Libyan interrogation report claimed that Masoud admitted to making the bomb. But why the attack? It is believed that the attack was in retaliation over the U.S. bombing campaign against the Libyan capital Tripoli in 1986. So now we leave the air and go to the sea. The year was 2014, and on this day, December 28th, the MS Norman Atlantic caught fire in the Strait of Toronto in the Adriatic Sea. The MS Norman Atlantic was a roll-on-roll-off passenger ferry owned by an Italian ferry company. If you didn't know or have forgotten, a roll-on-roll-off ferry is designed to carry wheeled cargo like car, and other vehicles that have wheels, and can be driven on and off the ship. As you would expect, this is in contrast to the lift-on, lift-off ferry, which requires cargo to be lifted. The ferry itself was built in 2009 and saw a pretty standard career as far as ferries go until the incident in 2014. At 5.50pm, the Norman Atlantic departed from Patras, Greece, heading towards Ancona, Italy. On board were 487 passengers and was crewed by a crew of 12. While making its trip across the Adriatic, the ferry suddenly caught fire in the Strait of Entronto. The fire is said to have started in the car deck with little warning, and the 475 passengers and crew began to move and try to get to safety some evacuating the ship despite there being no order to do so. The 427 passengers and 56 crew members were eventually rescued by the Italian Navy, with Greece authorities announcing that 478 passengers and crew were on board when the fire broke out. What's that? The numbers don't match? Yeah, that's because they kept changing because of the rescue. The Italian transport minister even came out and said that it wasn't clear which number was actually right. The Italian Navy was praised for its rescue effort, and the last to leave the ship was its captain. The captain was removed from the ship the same way all of the others were, by helicopter and aircraft. Over the course of a criminal investigation into the incident, it was discovered that the fire safety measures had been malfunctioning and emergency systems were just straight up missing. At least 12 people died due to the fire, and the cause of the fire was eventually speculated to have been caused by illegal Afghan immigrants who had boarded the ship, who then might have lit a fire in order to keep warm. According to Wikipedia, the ship was eventually relocated to the port of Bari, and in 2019 it was again moved to Turkey in order to be scrapped. Do you know what my favorite episode of Bob's Burgers is? It's the Topsy the Elephant one. The music, the story, the history, it all comes together in a spectacular fashion and is an episode that I've been known to rewatch on more than one occasion. And so when I learned that Topsy was relevant to this podcast, much like William Herschel in Uranus, I couldn't resist. It is a sad, sad tale, so proceed with caution. The year was 1903. 1903 and on January 4th, Topsy the Elephant was poisoned, strangled, and electrocuted to death. It's a pretty messed up story. The history of Topsy is just as tragic. She was kidnapped and smuggled from Southeast Asia, and was brought to the United States where she was bought by a circus owner by the name of Adam Forpaw. Forpaw went around telling everyone that Topsy was born on American soil and was, in fact, the first elephant to have done so, but a rivalry with a certain Mr. P.T. Barnum caused Barnum to accuse Forpa as being a fraud, and then nothing really happened, at least as far as Barnum is concerned. For the next two decades, Topsy performed in the circus, having been trained to do tricks which usually resulted in her being beaten. The article I read from grunge.com stated that sometimes she would be beaten just out of frustration. Unsurprisingly, she developed a bit of a reputation for being a bad elephant, which, in this instance, meant that she was acting like an elephant. Things would quickly change for Topsy, however, in June of 1902, when a spectator or a circus worker, I found articles claiming both, James Fielding Blount offered her whiskey, was refused, and then burnt Topsy as a punishment, I guess. In retaliation, Topsy crushed the man to death. Topsy then began her reputation as a killer elephant and Fourpa got rid of her, and Topsy ended up at Coney Island. She was again mistreated and suffered so much that her trainer, William Whitey Alt prodded her with a pitchfork so much that blood would be streaming down her face. He was, thankfully, arrested, but the papers framed it all as Topsy's fault. Alt was fired, and, lacking a trainer, the powers that be, made the decision to put Topsy to death. They wanted to hang her, but animal rights groups stepped in and they agreed to electrocute her instead. Now, you will no doubt remember that the plot of the Bob's Burgers episode involved Edison electrocuting Topsy as a way to discredit alternating current but according to smithsonianmag.com, that was not the case. Edison did electrocute animals in this fashion and display, it just apparently turns out Topsy wasn't one of them. Edison did, however, have a film crew there to film the whole thing, and if you are so inclined, you can find the video on YouTube. 25 cents admission was charged to this execution, but there was a bit of a problem. You see, no one had ever electrocuted an elephant before, and so no one knew how much electricity it would really take. The decision was made, then, that they would first poison Topsy, and they fed her carrots laced with potassium cyanide. To further ensure that the job would get done, a rope was put around her neck for strangulation. Apparently, this was the Rasputin of elephants. She was then electrocuted January 4th, 1903, And it took less than 10 seconds. She shook, then tipped forward, then, to make sure the job was done, a noose was held around her neck for 10 minutes. The SPCA officers present apparently said that it was the most humane manner of causing death that they had ever seen, which I guess accounts for something. Surprise! We're also doing. January 11th. You guys remember when we talked about how William Herschel discovered Uranus, or about all the other stuff that Herschel studied because he was an astronomer? With all of his discoveries and advances to the field of astronomy, well, it turns out that not only did Herschel discover Uranus, he also discovered two of Uranus's moons. And that's funny, because the term mooning people and Uranus... Sounds like I'm saying your anus. Look, this is the type of episode that if Matt from the Van Cave was still around, I could not wait to share with him because, well, it's pretty obvious. As we have talked about Herschel before, I won't go into much detail about the man. You can find that in episode number one. And instead, I will go over his discovery as well as talk about the moons. The year was 1787, and on this day, January 11th, William Herschel discovered Uranus' moons, Oberon, and Titania. Actually, Herschel claimed he discovered four moons that day, but people were a bit suspicious of it. A cool fact about these moons is that they are actually no space station. And another cool fact about these moons is that they were named, or at least co-named, by Herschel's son John after characters in the Shakespeare play A Midsummer Night's Dream, Oberon being the king of the fairies and Titania being the queen. Oberon is the second largest of all the moons of Uranus and looks not unlike our own moon covered in craters and colored gray, just with the noticeable difference of being an icy body in space. We actually didn't know much about Uranus's moons, let alone how many there were until they were studied by Voyager 2 in 1986, which, as we all will remember from history, was a year. From this voyage to the moon, it was discovered that there were 27 moons and not 5 as originally believed. Included in one of those original 5 was another moon discovered by Herschel in 1787, the moon Titania. Titania, or Titania, I found pronunciations on both, is the largest of all Uranus' moons, but the second furthest from the actual planet. It was actually dubbed Uranus 1 by William Lassell in 1848. It's smaller than our own moon and was first photographed by Voyager 2 in January 1986. It actually has visible linear valleys that run hundreds of miles long, but it's. Really interesting is that it is showing breaks in the crust on the surface. And they're in two directions. What this means is that at some point, and maybe even still, Titania is actually expanding. It's growing. Here's a random bit of trivia for you before we leave. Because the planet orbits on its side, the moons do too. And because the moons orbit on their side, They experience extreme versions of seasons with periods of light and darkness lasting 42 earth years. That's going to do it for us today. If you like this podcast and want to hear more, give us a rate and a review. That helps me out and helps steer this in a direction that is hopefully good for all. If you're watching this on YouTube, you can find the Year Was audio version on your podcast app of choice. You can find me on social media and at YouTube at the Apple Cider Club and As always, I want to thank the Tim Crites fan for our musical theme. And thank you for listening. We'll see you next time.